And then I had this lovely two-hour chat with, with Todd <laughs> over where he talked me through. It, I mean, it's, you know, not that I ever need to know why the Beatles are the best band that ever, but it, he actually gave me precise musical reasons. And you also said the thing that has completely obsessed me ever since. Todd is here. But completely obsessed me ever since. He said, nobody can cover the Beatles. They're always shit. Beatle yeah. covers are shit. always terrible. Oh, now. Oh, that's fucking tall. Challenge it, then. Okay, uh, I will give you. I'll tell you a good one. The late Fats Domino. There's a version of everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey from the White Album by Fats Domino, which the See, Beatles themselves <laughs> felt was superior to their own version. I'm just, I, I'm just saying. I, I think right? that, I think that is brilliant. I, I, even, I mean, I didn't know that. It, but what I mean is, when people yeah. do yesterday, or if they do, you know, I want to hold your hand, or they do. She loves you. There's some weird reason, which Top was really interesting about why there's some sort of weird DNA thing in the Beatles that makes them difficult. It's the personality that we love. We're in we're in love with the Beatles personality. Charisma, as, charisma as, as, as four individuals, and we love those voices. And as a group, it's yeah. like a guru thing. They call us white, bearded, and blinkered. But I think we're opening. <laughs> I think we're opening this. I think we're opening this up wide. Hello. And welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. We're gathered in a hotel suite just down the Strasse from Berlin Tempelhof, killing time before waiting for the first train out of Mittel Europe in the morning. The suite is on the tab of Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to create something special. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is Tot Taylor. Tot, hello. Hello. Tot is a writer, composer and art curator. He first came to public prominence as head of the Compact organisation. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, those of us of a certain vintage and with fine taste will recognise the Compact organisation as one of the best, best and most interesting uh, labels of the early 1980s. Thank you very much. 1981 to 1985. Oh, right, hooray. And you were saying that it's coming back. It's coming back. back. It's coming back with this little thing. I actually, you, I didn't know you were going to say that, but I've got it in my pocket. Werner wow. Lint, Attention Stockholm. Attention Stockholm by Werner Lint. Yeah. And look, oh, great. It's yours. It's yours, Andy. Oh, thanks. It's yours. What? What about that? <laughs> yeah, Live it's free mine, gifts. Matthew. It's the, you <laughs> free gifts. Legally, thank you so much, Tot. Um, Tot has also, and Tot can just do what he wants now. Um, <laughs> Tot has curated exhibitions, and he's also the author, according to the script I have in front of me, of a thousand word long debut novel. <laughs> <laughs> but I believe it's actually a thousand sig- page <laughs> long. I believe it's a thousand page. I have in front of me some green. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And um, which is published by Unbound. How long does it take, or, well, no, how long does it take you to finish? Uh, the novel. It took 12 years to write it, honestly, and it took a year for the copy editor to figure it out, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> it did. And, honestly, and it is... The story of John Knightley. It is. Uh, there are two books that I feel at Unbound that we published that I, I really think add to the growing pool of great fiction. I think The Wake by Paul Kingsnorth is one, and I think Tot's book, The Story mm. of John Knightley, is another. And the fact that people haven't read it is entirely down to the fact that people look at a thousand pages and think, <laughs> fuck. But um, you should. You should. I, I, I eagerly await your thousand word <laughs> And that works for you. If it, was, uh, if it was a thousand words, everyone would have read it. Yeah. yeah. Th- thank you, Matt. We're going to um, do that version. Uh, but you, Andy, have something to say to me, I don't do, you? I do, I do indeed. I, what, I wonder, have you been reading this week? Oh. And, and I'm, I, have a, I have a fulsome answer for you. I've been reading, I say, Comfort Read this week, a book that I, is one of my very favourite books. I wanted to do it when we did our oral history episode, but I felt we'd had, at that stage, possibly we'd been, there have been too many shepherds. And is, I, hang on. <laughs> is, this a, is this a shepherd book? This is the memoir. Um, <laughs> this is the Lifting the Latch. A Life on the Land by Sheila Stewart, based on the life of Mont Abbott of Enston, Oxfordshire, who is a carter, who was a carter and a shepherd. And it is, it is absolutely in the, I mean, I I don't think there are many, if you want rural, first person singular memoirs, Sheila Stewart's, obviously Mont didn't write himself. 
but he recorded tapes with her, and she's turned he's, she's turned this into a, a truly in first person turned it into a wonderful book. Now the reason I wanted to is the village I live in, Great Chew in Oxfordshire. When I was a student, I used to come up and go to the the pub, particularly on a Sunday, because there's a folk night on the Sunday, and um, it's there's still a folk night on the Sunday. It's still excellent. But I once saw this man, a very old man, with a lapel, a carnation in his lapel. And it was one of the most incredible... I mean, he had an incredible uh, tenor voice. And he sang, I mean, amazing sequence of English folk songs. And his natty suit, I mean, immaculately turned out. And I just remember, I just said, who the hell, that? who was that? And they said, oh, that's Mont Abbott, he's from Enston, he's... I said, oh, he's incredible. Is he a singer? No, he's a shepherd. He just lives over. Um, he died in 1986, I think, so before I'd moved to the village. Um, but I gave this book a couple of weeks ago to a friend who lives in the village who's a, a stonemason, retired now, and he came to me at the weekend in tears saying, I can't believe you. I've never read this book before. It's, it's, it is, it, it's not a complicated book, but it is absolutely the best record Mont was born in 1902. His, I'm going to read you a little... Uh, well, there's two. I could read you the bit about when his fiance dies because um, she gets caught in a, in a snowdrift and, and dies of pneumonia. But I think I might just read the end of it because it's, it's written in his voice and it's a voice that's very familiar because I live in this, in this area. But it's, 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 just a, it's just a brilliant bit of social history. It's a, an odd thing. I mean, it's not a work of literature, in that, you know, you're not going to... Nobody's going to be kind of exerting it. But what it is is a story of complete authenticity. And what Sheila Stewart has done, who is an interesting woman in her own right, she was... I love her biography. She's born illegitimate in 1928. Sheila Stewart counts herself lucky to have been brought up by the Waifs and Strays Society. Mm. <laughs> she became a teacher. And then she did... She wrote... She specialised in oral histories, basically. I'm not even sure if, she, if she's still alive, but if she is still alive, this book has given me more, actually more pleasure mm. than many of the great works of literature I've ever read. Um, Mont was kind of, he, his fiance died, he then fell down a well. One of the wonderful things in the book is he has a recurring nightmare of falling into a dark mm. hole. And then it happens. And he recovers and he thinks it's all going to be right. And then the, 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 the doctor rather cruelly and brutally says to him he says you planning to have any babies Mont and he says uh, well I'm planning to get married and this is after his fiance had been killed died I'm planning to have he said well I'm afraid that ain't going to happen because you um, you're not being able to have children so it's a te- I mean just a horrible <laughs> moment in the book where he realized he's fallen into a well and he's, he's hit a, a bar of metal side saddle and, and as he says back in those days but ne- back now you might have been able to do something but back then they couldn't so he said even if I'd marry Kate I, I'm thinking of her lying in the ground and I wouldn't have been able to do anything so of course what he becomes is this wonderful it's, it's honestly he, he, he is everybody's favourite grandfather the book is full of it's, it's, it's wise and lovely and I'll just read you the last the last bit which is Mont telling you about I ain't never been to the pictures. I went once, but I never seed out. It were a buckshee propaganda picture on by a government during the Great War. I drove a wagonette chock-a-block with Enston folk. When we got to the Odd Fellows Hall in Chippy, it's Chipping Norton, of the famous, you know, set, <laughs> where it were being showed, there were nowhere left to graze my horses. It'd be too long to leave them standing all that time. I stopped with them and took them cropping along the verge. I ain't never had no holiday set when I out of my death at Worthing. I don't hanker after flitting abroad and colour telly. I ain't never fled in an aeroplane. Don't want to. Too far to drop. What you never had, you never miss. You've had a hard life, Mont, folks say. Looking back on my career in on the land, carter, shepherd, gardener, I'd be well content. I didn't say I'd enjoyed every minute of it, tent much of a picnic in your lunch in the burrow of a barbed wire fence, but ploughing, penning, planting, I scratched old England on the back and hers give me wealth untold. Rosa still fetches me every morning. Her still won't give I the sack. And sometimes her drives me right round the world. My world. Hanborough, Glimpton, Whiteway Bottom, Peewit Corner, Rollwright's Twins, Neat Enston, Church Enston, Sam Peace, Air Enston, Air Oxfordshire, this England, take a lot of beating. Blessed is the man that stoppeth where he be. 
I ain't been so well lately. Doctor says I could pop off any day. They asked me if I made a will. I ain't got nothing to will. Except this old pocket watch, my shepherd's crook, my folding bar, my wheelbarrow. Them like me now, out of date, antique, ought to be in a museum. They asked me what I'd like to put on my tombstone when I snuffs it. For why? I ain't nobody famous to sign off with a flourish. People just might ask, who are you? Just scratch, Olmont, Enston, Oxen, England. I reckon that'd answer. And that is exactly what he has wow. on his gravestone. Wow. It's just, it, it's, wow. it's, it's just a uh, long... It's sort of round of applause around the table yeah. for that. It is a sort of classic of its kind. And what she does, which I love, is she doesn't... You know, she, it's his voice through the book. It's, yeah. I mean, you really feel... Oh, a bit overcome now. <laughs> that was, that was I can't follow that. <laughs> and the good news is, it's still in print, 899, Oxford University Press. Um, it's kind of, it is, it, it is a sort of a classic of its kind. Lifting the latch, Sheila Stewart. Great. Andy, what have you been reading last year? Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That, how did you know? How did you tell? So we're recording this in December uh, 2017. But. And I have just finished, uh, I finished a couple of days ago, a book entitled Hearing Secret Harmonies, which is the 12th and final volume of Anthony Poles, A Dance to the Music of Time. And I have been reading A Dance to the Music of Time all year, uh, one volume a month. I really... Why are you shaking your head, Matt? <laughs> I really... It's been fantastic. It's been one... And I've kept quite, quite... I've mentioned it a couple of times on here, but I've kept quiet about it because... I'll tell you for why. Because... Are you writing about it? Well, sort of. no. I, I, what, what happened was, you may recall that about a year ago, we talked about this before, and I won't dwell on it, but about a year ago, our mutual friend David Miller died. Yeah. And uh, in the last couple of years, particularly, uh, on the occasions that I saw David, he would say to me, have you started reading A Dance to the Music of Time yet? Because it was one of his favourite books. And uh, I hadn't. And uh, so what I decided I would do uh, this year is read uh, the whole thing, uh, one volume a month, as a way of keeping David in mind... Uh, uh, all year uh, and uh, it's been really a brilliant experience to read the book I'm a bit sad now because having finished it of course I can't talk to him about it there's a piece in the TLS this week there's a review of the new biography of Pole by Hilary Sperling mm. by A.M. Wilson in which A.M. Wilson says correctly who reads A Dance to the Music of Time now it seems to, it was considered so important in the era it was published which was the 50s through to the 1970s it has fallen from uh, public view somewhat because superficially it seems to be a uh, long, involved chronicle of a particular class in England which has, I suppose, passed from prominence anyway. It's, it's about the upper middle and upper classes. Um, but, uh, but... Are there... Are there so... I've weirdly, I've always, wanted, I, I've always wanted to do it, and I was kind of inspired by your. I think I'm going to start in January and do next year what you've right, done this okay. year. Well, because I've always, want, month, I've, al- yeah. I've always wanted to read it, and I've always had that slight suspicion that it is, you know, another bunch of you know toffs being, you know. Dull. All I'm going to say about it. All I'm going to say about it. Oh, so is I'm that, interested to yeah, know yeah. Whether, it, whether it transcends it. Sort of. Um, it, it, I mean, somebody said to me, which is very cruelly said, yeah, it's like Woodhouse without the laughs. Mm, that's which, not. Which is obviously that's not, crap. Not that. That is that neither fair true. nor accurate. That's neither fair nor accurate. Um, Bl- erudite, but blinkered. I would describe <laughs> that as. Um, that's a new I would say the thing that he ha- that he has in common with any great writer and if anything is perhaps somewhat more acute than many great writers, is a terrific comic apprehension of personality and behaviour caused by personality. Yeah, yeah. So, there was, a, so was it an Andrew Davis series? Was it, it, was, it was adapted? It was Channel 4, wasn't it, about it, 20 years yeah. ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I can remember looking at it and thinking, but, you know, it's, it's my, my problem with that is a bit like, I can't abide any of the adaptations of Gatsby. They're just mm. all terrible. Well, we're going to come on to adaptations, aren't we, later in the episode? They so. just all seem to me to yeah. be terrible because the, the, the joy of Gatsby is in the language. 
Well, and I, I, what I feel about Pole is that, or Powell, whatever we're Pole. supposed, Pole we're supposed to say, um, is that he just seems to me to be. And I love the whole story. Having read the reviews of the Spurling, mm-hmm. is he came to this very late. He was a bit of a. Mm-hmm. His life was sort of going nowhere, and then he started to do this thing. I'm not sure that it brought him massive wealth or riches, but it's. It, I, I mean, it, I, I'm I'm slightly holding back because I think there's a good chance that we might we do, will do Pole it, yeah. on Batlisted, and yeah. we might even try and do a dance the music of time on Batlisted yeah. because partly for the reason that it was so critically acclaimed in its era and deemed so important and deemed one yeah. of the great achievements of post-war uh, English letters, and it's clearly not seen that way anymore. Uh, and so, but I also have to say, John, I tried reading this in my 20s and, and it didn't and work. Failed and it didn't work. Yeah. Coming back to it in my late 40s, it seems so, so different uh, as a reading experience. I, I'm glad I didn't read it when I was younger. I got so much out of it this year and I've so enjoyed reading it. I'm writing something at the moment about it anyway. What I thought was, I would, what I thought I would do is read the beginning of the whole of A Dance to the Music of Time. So that uh, if you, the listener, anyone listening to this podcast in January 2018 has got a head start on <laughs> A Dance to the Music of Time, you will have inhaled the opening of A Dance to the Music of Time. You will have started reading it almost against your will. Excellent. And so you can, you can proceed from there. So I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs. I think you will get the feel for it from this alone. One. The men at work at the corner of the street had made a kind of camp for themselves where, marked out by tripods hung with red hurricane lamps, an abyss in the road led down to a network of subterranean drain pipes. Gathered round the bucket of coke that burned in front of the shelter, several figures were swinging arms against bodies and rubbing hands together with large pantomimic gestures, like comedians giving formal expression to the concept of extreme cold. One of them, a spare fellow in blue overalls, taller than the rest, with a jocular demeanour and a long pointed nose like that of a Shakespearean clown, suddenly stepped forward and, is, and, as if performing a rite, cast some substance, apparently the remains of two kippers loosely wrapped in newspaper, on the bright coals of the fire, causing flames to leap fiercely upward, smoke curling about in eddies of the northeast wind. As the dark fumes floated above the houses, snow began to fall gently from a dull sky each flake giving a small hiss as it reached the bucket. The flames died down again, and the men, as if required observance were for the moment at an end, all turned away from the fire, lowering themselves laboriously into the pit or withdrawing to the shadows of their tarpaulin shelter. The grey, undecided flakes continued to come down, though not heavily, while a harsh odour, bitter and gaseous, penetrated the air. The day was drawing in. For some reason... The sight of snow descending on fire always makes me think of the ancient world. Legionaries in sheepskin warming themselves at a brazier. Mountain altars where offerings glow between wintry pillars. Centaurs with torches cantering beside a frozen (laughs) sea. Scattered, uncoordinated shapes from a fabulous past, infinitely removed from life, and yet bringing with them memories of things real and imagined. These classical projections and something in the physical attitudes of the men themselves as they turned from the fire suddenly suggested Poussin's scene in which the seasons, hand in hand and facing outward, tread in rhythms the notes of the lyre that the winged and naked greybeard plays. The image of time brought thoughts of mortality, of human beings facing outward like the seasons, moving hand in hand in intricate measure, stepping slowly, methodically, sometimes a trifle awkwardly, in evolutions that take recognisable shape, or breaking into seemingly meaningless gyrations, while partners disappear only to reappear again, once more giving pattern to the spectacle, unable to control the melody, unable, perhaps, to control the steps of the dance. Classical associations made me think, too, of days at school, where so many forces, hitherto unfamiliar, had become, in due course, uncompromisingly clear. Now, come on, come on, come on, <laughs> undecided <laughs> flakes. <laughs> That's good. Some people would say, read the whole thing in one go. I, I really enjoyed 
taking a break between each volume to let each volume settle. Yeah. Then, because Paul wrote each volume a few years apart, you pick up with the characters again several years down the line. And what the book does is tell the story of 60 years of British history and 60 years of the lives of the people. Mm. They come and go. They drift in and out of one another's... Um, uh, uh, experience, lived experience. Mm-hmm. So I hope we get to do it on here. And it's, good. it's great if you were fa- planning to read it. Well, I just, you know, it's one of the, like Proust, it's one of those things you sort of feel at some point you ought to do. Mm-hmm. And I've also, I, I'm fascinated by the period. Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested, I'm becoming more and more interested in, I think, what the, 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 that period that. Um, between the wars and the, 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 I mean, I suppose it's that that middle period of the 20th century where it seems that so much of what we're now, the shit that we're now having to clean up, sort of happened between the First World War and the Second World War, and the sort of the post Second World War, mm-hmm. and that you know the, the catastrophic decline of, of Britain and the end of empire. And, and I know Paul just seems to me to me to be a really interesting. If you want to get, if you want to understand Christine Keeler, you know who, mm-hmm. who died yesterday. Also, I would add, I would add that rather like the the Rabbit novels by Updike, yeah. Although, you know, the the, the gap between the first and last volumes is twenty five years in terms yeah. of when they were written. The the final volume particularly does that thing that great fiction does of up until the very last page being both unpredictable and completely satisfying. <laughs> which is great. It's inconceivable. In fact, when I was just reading that passage, which I know is quite long, but when I was reading that passage, with the memory of the final few pages in my mind, mm. it's, it's real yeah. um, spine-tingling stuff. We'll pick this up again after some adverts. Stay tuned to this. Talking about unexpected responses to the First World War. <laughs> I have to say, I think, yeah. look, I think the book that we're about to talk about is one of the oddest and most exotic <laughs> post-war... I mean, it, you know, there's a, there were massive numbers of novels, did it? But Lost Horizon... So it's Lost Horizon. The thing about Lost Horizon, before I ask you, Top, the question that we tend to ask on, on this programme, I'm going to say a, a, Get a it fact out there. about Lost Horizon. I'd heard of Lost Horizon... I'd heard of the concept of Shangri-La. I was surprised to learn that the author of that book had also written another book I'd heard of, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Chips. And yet I'm confident that if I went out into the street and said, have you ever heard of James Hilton? No one would. To have achieved two of the most culturally significant and best-selling books of the 20th century and yet be forgotten. Isn't it, odd? Me, it is really odd, isn't it? It seems to me pure backlist. There, there's three, stuff. really, because Random Harvest as well. Ran, I read Random Harvest this week. Mm, yeah. oh. So, three. Lost Horizon by James <laughs> Hilton. Tot, when did you first come across this book? I first came across this book, um, as usual with me, probably 50% of the books that I've liked I've watched as films, or I've always... Um, had a sort of mixture of formats you know I'm, I'm very interested in, in if something's a film can it be a book if it's a book can it be a musical if it's a musical is it an opera or is it a sort of uh, you know Stephen Sondheim thing or whatever it is and so I think I saw I read the book when I was about nine because it was one of the few books in our uh, school library <laughs> and I probably got about halfway through it and I found it very very difficult to um, uh, to sort of finish it and actually I, I read it again two or three weeks ago and I found it difficult to finish <laughs> uh, as well a, um, a ringing it, endorsement it, there it, it, it was also I, I also realised um, when I was young that it was a sort of thing of wonderment one of the big things about it was literally the title and I love titles I'm a big sort of fan of all kinds of titles and it's I love when you title. get two words that take you somewhere. So even if I had never seen the book or, or read the book, um, Lost 
horizon, you know, as a kid. I don't really know what that means, but I know it's a special thing. And if you then read the book and you find out what it's actually about, the title that comes to you would not be Lost Horizon. It would be something else. So it suggests mm. this person's operating on a kind of a higher plane where they're... they're, they're, they're really good point. They're it's thinking, a really odd title. Yeah, the thinking is like flying above the story, and I like things like that. Because you would call it, you know, it, it's essentially the story of Shangri-La you might or call it Shangri-La. Shangri-La. Yeah. But Lost Horizon is... It's, yeah, it's I bigger. Mean, Conway, it's, who's the the key character mm. in the book. It's all about him losing his bearings. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So and, we, and, and so Before you go any further, Todd, I, 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 based on something you said to me um, before we recorded, I'm very keen to go around the table. <laughs> we, we have, I think we have, very unusually for that <laughs> list, we have a sp- clear split in terms of how we feel about the book. So, John, did you enjoy the book? No, I did enjoy the book. I mean, I don't think it is a... Uh, I don't think it's a, a massively, you know, uh, it's not Moby Dick. It's not a great work of literature. But I think what what I'm curious about is very. It's a, it's one of the. It's it's a it's a classic high concept book. It kind of sets up a a, a, a story. In just in terms of narrative, I think it tells the story quite well. I think there's a little bit of you know, fudging towards the end. Matt, Matt did you enjoy the book? Uh, I really enjoyed the book. Yeah, I, I mean, okay. enjoyment is exactly what I felt. And okay. I enjoyed it. it. Was very, I, I thought it was a very easy read as well. Yeah. Kind of, right. I thought it was by far the worst, the book. most peculiar book that we have done <laughs> on that list. It's peculiar, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. And Todd, what did you say to me? Do you, do you think it's a good book? I think that, um, you know, this is what I was about to say, is that at the same time as I was reading it. I used to go to our... We, were, we lived in East Anglia, in the sort of outskirts of Cambridge, and we had a, a library, and my mother was a reader, so I used to have to go and get her a book every week um, from the library, and I, I picked this one up. And I, I would have only picked this up because of the cover. That would have been it, really. But at around the same time, I would have seen the black-and-white film, the Frank Capra film. And I remember mm. when... It was at the, at the point when we were watching, like, film matinee and all that stuff, and yeah. Fred Astaire films and stuff like that. And this would have really fitted into that. They were black-and-white, classic Hollywood, like, Goldwyn films. And I remember um, being entranced by the way that it looked. It does The film looks very, very spectacular. And then I remember that I'd had the book, and that was the book that I'd probably got halfway through and then abandoned. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, also, the, the, the sort of denouement of the book, when they do what they do, I don't know how much to say because I want no. people to read the book, because yeah. it is a special story. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's, but, quite, it's a bit of a problem for spoilers with yeah, this book, isn't it? Yeah, we're, 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 there is a devastating scene at the end which I still believe is probably for me for my brain is the most devastating scene in movies I really think it is when I see what happens Mm -hmm. when they get to where they're going Mm -hmm. that probably made me levitate in on my village (laughs) sofa you know Um, and so this is the cat we should add this is the 1937 Capra film adaptation starring Ronald Coleman which was in itself a huge hit in its day so Capra's reputation, in a way, was made largely on the back of, of Lost Horizon. Yeah, well, he had a, num- a number of hits, though, you know, when you actually yeah. look at the end of it. But, like all great things, um, they can happen at any point in, in history. It doesn't matter, really, you know, when they happen. And this film uh, was, you know, it is a very much it's a, a 19, very much a 1930s film. I mean, if you're going to ask me about the book again, Andy, I would say, do I prefer... Um, the, the, the film is a better work of art than the book. I think the film is better than the book. Yeah. I, and, I mean, I, and I think you'd be quite an odd person not. But I'm interested about the book because I wonder if Tibetan Buddhism, if that kind of mystical stuff, the Shangri La stuff, that's now very familiar post 60s when it became, you know. I wonder if anybody had. I mean, you know, it's quite, it's quite a deep book. There's a lot it's of. I mean, very well, deep. There's a lot of <laughs> philosophical complicated stuff in there which for a popular pot boiler is quite I mean it's not what you're getting in in most let's this is a recording of um, James Hilton this is this is him in 1949 talking about the inspiration of Lost Horizon because this book was written in 33 right so let's let's listen to that now Lost Horizon was written in London 18 years ago during the winter of 1932 that was a hard winter for the world The lowest point had we then known it of the Depression, 
and already dark with the threat of war to come. About that time it probably began to dawn on civilized man that he lived in an age of recurrent and deepening crisis, that military victories did not bring peace, that his world wars would have to be given numbers, and that nowhere on earth was there any place where the storm could be outridden. It was in this mood that I wrote Lost Horizon, and I enjoyed writing it as one may sometimes almost consciously enjoy a dream. I once met another traveller from Tibet, a rather odd fellow he was, and he assured me that he had actually found the last valley of Shangri-La that I wrote about, a haven of peace and beauty hidden amidst the highest peaks in the world, and that it was all pretty much as I had described it. Of course, I can hardly believe that, but I should like to. I should like to. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> that's nice. That is lovely. But your, your point, John, about what this book said, why, why some books resonate in the way they do. And this do. was a what massive bestseller. A bestseller. Massive bestseller. This, one of the reasons this was such a bestseller is that it was... Um, uh, you're going to have to cut this, man. The first pocketbook. One of the reasons this was such a bestseller is that it was the first pocket pocket book, yeah. first mass market paperback yeah. in the in US. America. Seven million copies. It's one of the best-selling books of the 20th century Incredible. for that reason. I've got here the list of the first ten pocket books, <laughs> which I thought I would share with brilliant, you. Brilliant. Right. So, one Lost Horizon by James Hilton, and remember these these all sold millions of copies because. The, um, Pocket I'm, I'm got the idea from Penguin in the I UK. Know, I'm, I'm well. depressed already. Here we go. Right, these all sold millions of copies. Lost Horizon. Two, Wake Up and Live by Dorothea Brand. Three, Five Great Tragedies by William Shakespeare. Yes. Four, Topper by Thorn Smith. <laughs> That's what we should be doing on this show. <laughs> topper. Any Topper fans out there? Yeah. Come on down. Five, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha uh, Christie. Mm. Six, Enough Rope by Dorothy Parker. <coughs> Seven, Wuthering Heights by Emily oh. Bronte, which became a bestseller in the US in the 1930s for the first mm. time. Amazing. Eight, The Way of All Flesh by Samuel, Samuel Butler. Butler. Wow. Nine, The Bridge of San Luis Rey by Thornton Wilder. Wow. And ten, Bambi by Felix Sultan. Mm. Wow. So, they, so, so it's, it has, first of all, it has that tremendous... It had, and the reason why this is another interesting fact. The reason why it, it became so popular in the mid nineteen thirties is that Hilton had already his first hit is actually "Goodbye, Mr. Mr. Chips," mm, yeah. and then on the back of "Goodbye, Mr. Chips," "Lost Horizon" becomes a mass bestseller too. So he's clearly and, telling stories that people in the thirties want I, to hear. I was thinking as I was reading it that the, uh, the Lamasery of Shangri-La is a little bit like your kind of fantasy English public school. It's sort of... Yeah, uh, it's an enclosed kind of, community. It's enclosed community, hierarchical, that you're... You, it's inductive. You don't... You know, Conway, who is the kind of the main character, he doesn't... The only way you learn stuff is by asking questions and listening. It's not by... I mean, it's... It, it's it's a it's an it's a novel that really does. I mean, I do think it's a novel that makes you think and reflect. It's very deep. Yeah. Todd, would you read us an extract from the novel so we can well, get a feel for it? Well, we haven't really said what it's actually about yet. Yeah, do that. Um, perhaps we should do that. So, so why don't I read from why don't I read from this epic little publication that I bought a long time ago, Cliff Notes. <laughs> you can the actually, yeah, you can actually get lost to rising cliff notes. No, but this is very good um, and, because and just and where did you where did that cliff notes? This come came from? from the girls. Um, I have to say, Tot has got he's got CDs. He's got amazing. Everything. He's got R. D. Lang's knots. He's got very amazing. Relevant. He's got amazing old editions of the yeah, book. It's very, very well prepared, and all these incredible LPs, which we're unfortunately never going to be able to play because we don't have any. <laughs> I'm going to spin them around on my teeth at the end. You don't know that yet. But there we are. Look, the English department, Highland Park High School, Los Angeles, California. That's where this came from. It was probably about 1973. In fact, it must be because at the start, it says also by James Hilton, Random Harvest. And it says here we've got a printing. What does it say? First printing, 1933. And it says um, 1973, 17th printing. 
that's mm. pretty good to get to 17. So, but, um, the, have you so, got the cliff notes? Uh, yeah, I've got the cliff notes. This is what they say. And uh, just to say that the book's quite different to the film because the book has a lot of unresolved things in it, which makes it a little bit difficult to get, particularly with this prologue and epilogue yeah. um, in it, which the film uh, sort of dispenses with in a way. <laughs> so here we are. Two men, a novelist and a neurologist, sit up all night discussing the fate of a school acquaintance. This is Hugh Conway, the, the, uh, the star of the, 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 the book, the lead character. The brilliant British consul who mysteriously disappeared the year before, 1930, during an uprising in Afghanistan. A plane carrying him and three other passengers was stolen by an unidentified man and the whole party was never heard of again. The author, Rutherford, discloses the startling information that he had found Conway quite by chance, ill and suffering from amnesia in a Chinese mission three months before. While Conway was on his way back to England with Rutherford, his memory returned and he described his fantastic adventures to Rutherford, who subsequently put them in manuscript form. Conway disappeared from the boat in Honolulu and his last word sent in a letter to Rutherford three months later from Bangkok... (laughs) stated that he was starting on a long journey to the northwest. Rutherford sets out to look for him. Now, that, weirdly enough, is the Cliff Notes prologue. Now, if I had read that and you'd read the book, you'd kind of go, where is that? What's actually <laughs> happening? <laughs> but that is what happens. But, but simply, what actually happens is that there is a revolution in Iran and um, Hugh Conway is the British consul, and he manages to get a group of people who are frightened out of the way on an airstrip, and they jump into a plane where they don't know where they're going, and Conway kind of gets, get us out of here. And the plane's got a Chinese um, pilot, and they go, they don't know where, but they go into the Himalayas, and they crash somewhere. This is a, I'm, I'm cutting it all down. And in the morning, um, when they all think, you know, we're going to die, it's very cold, and they're in the middle of this kind of mountain... Um, some monks come down from a passage, from a sort of light passage, onto a ledge, and they come and they look at the plane, and the people in the plane think, oh, my God, we're really in trouble here. And the, the head monk, who's, who is um, in, the, in what we're going to talk about next, John Gilgood, <laughs> speaks, no, with, no spoilers. speaks with a kind of perfect English accent and asks them who they are and if they would like to go with them back to their village. <laughs> And that's where the story starts. Now, I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning of the book. This is the part that we were talking about that's narrated by Rutherford. Yeah. And um, this is the scene. This, I think, is actually... (laughs) It's my favourite scene in the book. And uh, it is an example of master storytelling. (laughs) Um, So so here we go. Uh, uh, A rather odd thing was beginning to happen. Conway had sat down at the keyboard and was playing some rapid, lively piece that I didn't recognise, but which drew Siverking back in great excitement to ask what it was. Conway, after a long and rather strange silence, could only reply that he didn't know. Siverking exclaimed that that was incredible and grew more excited still. Conway then made what appeared to be a tremendous physical and mental effort to remember and said at last that the thing was a Chopin study. I didn't think myself it could be, and I wasn't surprised when Stevie King denied it absolutely. Conway, however, grew suddenly quite indignant about the matter, which startled me, because up to then he had shown so little emotion about anything. My dear fellow, Stevie King remonstrated, I know everything of Chopin's that exists, and I can assure you that he never wrote what you have just played. He might well have done so, because it's utterly in his style, but he just didn't. I challenge you to show me the score in any of the editions. To which Conway replied at length, Oh, yes, I remember now. It was never printed. I only know it myself from meeting a man who used to be one of Chopin's pupils. Here's another unpublished thing I learned from him. Rutherford steadied me with his eyes as he went on. I don't know if you're a musician, but even if you're not, I dare say you'll be able to imagine something of Siva King's excitement of mine too, as Conway continued to play. To me, of course, it was a sudden and quite mystifying glimpse into his past, the first clue of any kind that had escaped. Stephen King was naturally engrossed in the musical problem, which was perplexing enough, as you'll realise when I remind you 
that Chopin died in 1849. <laughs> I mean, it's it's wonderful, but it's setup. such a set, brilliant, a brilliant setup, setup. A such a way setup. of of showing, not telling. And actually. I think I, I think this. I I found there's a lot in the book that um, that is like that. There's a lot of there's a lot of quite a lot of quite interesting philosophical digression in it. Um, and I, I, there's just a. This is, a good, this is just a good little passage of, of great description. That evening after dinner, Conway made occasion to leave the others and stroll out into the calm, moon-washed courtyards. Shangri-La was lovely then, touched with the mystery that lies at the core of all loveliness. The air was cold and still. The mighty spire of Caracal looked nearer, much dear, nearer than by daylight. Conway was physically happy, emotionally satisfied and mentally at ease, but in his intellect, which was not quite the same thing as mind, there was a little stir. He was puzzled. The line of secrecy that he'd begun to map out grew sharper, but only to reveal an inscrutable background. The whole amazing series of events that had happened to him and his three chance companions swung now into a sort of focus. He could not yet understand them, but he, leave, but he believed they were somehow to be understood. And that, that sort of reflective tone is very much what the, mm. the book's like. It, it's it, it's a, a lot of Conway being kind of initiated into the mysteries of this extraordinary place. Yeah. And without giving too much away, you know, it's, as Andy said, there is a sort of, you know, there is a kind of a, a MacGuffin-y type plot to it as well. But... I have to say, I'm still not sure what, what the fuck goes on in the book. <laughs> I was going to say, I, my question to you, Tom, yeah. is a what? straightforward one. What is this book about? Well, it's about, um, <laughs> it's about wonder. It's about ageing. It's about yeah. us being different personalities as we go through our lives. I think I reckon we're about six different people when we get from A to B. Um, it's about a single person and the way that he is thought of by the people in a particular group. Yeah. It's really about it's a group um, story. And I think, I mean, John has alluded to some kind of um, philosophical, you know, maybe hippie sort of spirit, and I totally agree with that. And I've got some ideas about where it actually comes from because this book does sort of come out of the blue. I mean, you, yeah. could, you could be reading I mean, this in, I mean, in, I, in I, 1970. I, I was absolutely... <laughs> When I was a teenager, I loved Lobsang Ramper, mm. which was, mm. it turns out he was a plumber from Bristol. But, <laughs> but those books were all about, I grew up in a lamasery in Tibet. And the whole, the whole Tibetan Buddhism thing and, and Lhasa and, and, and that lot. And I, what I feel now is that, what's his name? I can't remember. He's got a great name. He's called Bill someone. But he was... You know, Tuesday Lobsang Ranka was his, and he was the reincarnation of a Tibetan Lama. But I obviously think he read Lost Horizon was, was at it? an early age. And, and I mean, it's quite interesting because you do have to keep reminding yourself that this book was written in 1933. Yeah. It was, as, 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 as Hilton himself said, was, it was at the sort of the bottoming out of yeah. the Depression. It was before the Second World War. Yeah. It was before Hiroshima. It was be and way before Tibetan Buddhism became a kind of a... I mean, I guess there were elements of it in there. Aldous Huxley was interested in it. But it certainly wasn't mainstream. Well, well, there, well hang, there, on, hang, on, hang on, hang on, hang on. There are. Well, no, I, I think what you're saying, John, um, taught as well, is... For me, what the book is about is, let's say you find a utopia, is it possible to sustain a utopia? Mm -hmm. The idea, or is it something that you have to um, look for and leave? Well, for, well, somebody in the 1930s we who had been through the First World War with an eye on what might happen in the future, seems to me... I mean, without, and without giving away the differences between the book and the film, which we're all a bit, kind of, is the book is very much less clear about what happens. Mm. To, it's unresolved. Yeah, it's unresolved yeah. in the book, in a way. Can I just pick up on what you said originally? Because I think that's a key thing. So I think that the influence in this book could very well be... So it was written in um, London. It wasn't written in America. He hadn't gone there yet. 
And I think that it comes from, number one, possibly, William Morris, News from Nowhere. News from Nowhere. Yeah. Very, because exact, if you, that's, that's exactly what it reminded yeah, me because of. Because if you think about Which hippie, hippie is not communes, a very good book, in my view. <laughs> I mean, much as I love my I adore Morris. But, it's, but it is a, the kind of first one of its yeah. type. Um, if you think about hippie communities, you know, William Morris is like the first thing, really. And um, that's 1892. Um, it says here, I, I just looked at it this morning to have a look at it, it says, no one unburdened with very heavy anxieties could have felt otherwise than happy that morning. And it must be said that whatever anxieties might lie beneath the surface of things, we didn't seem to come across any of them. Now, one of the ideas about Shangri-La is that you can actually stay much younger than you are as long as you don't have anxieties. And that's why mm. they have the, the Tangatsi berry or whatever it's called. Oh, that's you know, the, that's the, sort of right, the magic narcotic, berry. Yeah, yeah narcotic berry. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And the idea is... There is a slight magic boost thing about it. The mighty boost thing about it as well, isn't it? It's like, open the door. But the thing is, it's so, <laughs> what's so interesting about it is that it's so embedded in the yeah. culture of the whole 20th century. It is, The really. notion of Shangri-La. Now, yeah. we, have, we have another clip here, which I was so happy when I found this so Hilton is writing about utopia and uh, but here he is talking about another writer in another book who which portrays the opposite portrays dystopia George Orwell is a distinguished English writer who is desperately concerned as many others of us are today with the shape of things to come and as long ago as 1932 Mr. Huxley satirized the regimented state in his book called Brave New World Indeed, the crisis of our civilization is in some danger of becoming a cliché for after-dinner speakers. Personally, I find Mr. Orwell's picture horrible and timely and fascinating. It will probably take its place among the memorable works of its kind, both for its technical virtuosity and for a sort of intellectual passion that pervades it throughout. Mr. Orwell is, as we say, burned up about the state of the world, but the fuel of that fire is not only in the world but in his own mind. This is what makes the satirist at all times and in all ages. And it's why, having read Mr. Orwell's 1984, you may not feel you'd like to meet any of its characters, but you do feel you'd like to meet Mr. Orwell, if only for an argument. <laughs> 1949. That is, that 1949. It's incredible. So Hilton, Hilton was born in uh, 1900, and he wrote 20 novels. Yeah. Mm. Uh, 1920 novels. Um, <coughs> has his first success in the early 1930s, and then he moves to Hollywood, and he, he works in Hollywood, as many writers did in that time. He won an Oscar for his contributions to the script of Mrs. Miniver. Yeah. Uh, he contributes to Foreign Correspondent by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, and then he sort of becomes, um, towards the end of his life... What you're hearing then is he used to regularly broadcast on books for NBC. Mm. So those clips come from him as a kind of Hollywood personality writer. Mm. Um, uh, he's, one of his great public admirers was Sigmund Freud, although Freud thought that he had um, uh, uh, been too prolific. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. The uh, curse of the middle brow. Uh, yeah. Um, but he wrote a book. I'd love to read. There's a book of his. I was. I, this description sounds amazing. This is from the late. This is from the 40s, I think. He wrote a novel called We Are Not Alone, mm. uh, and I'm quoting from the description here: a grim story of a legally approved lynching brought on by wartime hysteria in Britain. Wow. Now that sounds that like does that sound sounds great, great doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, he's a, he, he, you know. <laughs> Master storyteller. He's a good storyteller, you have to say. I think Lost Horizon is... I mean, it's fascinating because it, it obviously... It, I mean, you know, put pocketbooks aside. It, it touched a nerve. I mean, you don't sell... I mean, it, even in the 70s, it sold 3 million copies by the 70s. God knows what it sold. Yeah. But it's it proper a proper sort of blockbuster. So what could possibly go wrong? And a great Okay, film. so... What could possibly okay, go so, wrong? So Todd and I were talking about this. So Hilton has the, this incredible weird thing that happens twice to him. He's got a hugely successful book, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Lost Horizon. It becomes a great black and white film, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Lost Horizon. Robert, don't <laughs> Then becomes a terrible musical, <laughs> Goodbye Mr. Chips, Lost Horizon. So Goodbye Mr. Chips is made into a musical in the late 1960s with songs by Leslie Bricasse. Yep. Starring Peter O'Toole, 
<laughs> the worst bits of, of course, casting of all I remember, time. Of course. Yeah, okay. now I do remember. And it. then, but <laughs> this is Tots. Tell us something about the musical adaptation of Lost Horizon. Okay, I really like it. I don't think it's bad or silly or anything. As a film, it's a bit strange, I guess. Um, when, it, when, when it came out in 1973, I actually went to see it three times that week with my friend Mick Bass, who's a songwriter as well. And we went to see it just to hear the songs come up. Because in, in my view, this is actually is, is Bert Bacharach and Hal David, and it's them at, their, at the height of their powers. You think, you at, think this, is, this is Bacharach and David at, at their absolute... Absolutely. I, I, I yeah. have never heard this soundtrack until about ten days ago. Uh, I've now listened to the soundtrack several times and I've yeah. seen the film. And I have to say, the soundtrack is magnificent, yes. I think. Yes. So thank you, Top, for, <laughs> for making... I bought the record years ago, but I, because of its reputation, I'd never actually... Mm. Played it. Do you, and you really rate it, don't you? I think it's very beautiful, and I think it's very interesting as well. There is some synchronicity um, with this hippie thing. And, of course, we are now in the hippie era, and so Lost Horizon is very appropriate. But also, um, Backrack David had had at least uh, seven, eight years of being like the, the, top, the, top. the top team, maybe apart from Lennon McCartney. And I think that they wanted to move somewhere else. They wanted to move into another area, and this sort of oriental, slightly kind of Chinese thing. That, that bit that you played there is not it's, very representative. But it sounds like a Backrack and David It does sound like a Backrack. It's got the Latin uh, flavour. Also, at the time, if you think about what was actually happening, you know, 70, 71, 72, 73, we've, we were talking about it before, you've got Stephen Sondheim Company, you know, it's the height mm. of sophistication of songwriting and putting that together with a story. Yeah. And I believe that this is as well. You have Jimmy Webb, you know, you have mm. this, this thing where um, surfs up, you know, you have things where pop music is at its most sophisticated level. It's very, very chromatic. It's, it's modulating all the time. You know, you get like a line with four, you're in four keys in a Jimmy Webb song, for example. Surfs up, it's difficult to figure out where you actually are. And there's a song here called The World is a Circle, where I counted it in nine seconds, we're in four different keys. The thing about The World is a Circle is, a top pointed out to me, to my utter rapture that The World is a Circle sounds remarkably like a highly orchestrated version of our usual backlisted theme music. Mm. So what, so, it so does. what you heard at the beginning of this episode, I hope, Matt, <laughs> is, is, is a little bit of the extract from The World is a Circle, which just sounds like our music, but, but wonderfully orchestrated. Yeah. Yeah. The, there's the problem, so the, the score is, uh, is amazing. Amazing. But there are big problems with the film. <laughs> I've seen the film now. Now listen, I'm gonna play we're gonna play a bit from a song. This is a key song in the in the musical adaptation called If I Could Go Back, where Conway, the character of Conway, played by Peter Finch, <laughs> the immediately the red light starts flashing. What could go wrong? But Conway played by Peter well, Finch. He's got to be way too old. Right, I mean, he's, he's way he's, too old. He's thinking to himself if I could go back to civilization from Shangri-La, would I go back? back. Okay. Now, here is this. I also, in preparation for this episode, I read, although I have had a copy for several years, I read Burt Bacharach's autobiography. Oh, covered it. It's wonderful. Great. One of the least gallant book ever written. <laughs> That's not the bit I'm going to... So I'm going to read you this. This is from the chapter about Lost Horizon. And this is what he talks about that song that we've just listened to. I won't do Bert's voice because it's not Bert's fair. But I'll just, I'll do. Although I still think a lot of the music I did for Lost Horizon was good, there was one scene in the picture where Peter Finch, who played the leader of the Travellers, has to make a big decision. He misses his life in London, but if he stays in Shangri-La, he can be with the woman he loves forever. So he sings, If I Could Go Back. The song had a lot of heart, and I thought it was very powerful. When I saw the song in the rushes, I thought it was good. But after I watched a rough cut of the entire film for the first time, I knew it was a disaster. It didn't matter that Peter Finch was singing, how do I know this is part of my real life? If there's no pain, can I be sure that I feel life and would I go back if I knew how to go back? Because when you saw it in the movie, you didn't give a fuck if he went back or not. (laughs) (laughs) So this film is, is, is a, you know which was known as in the Hollywood community as Lost Investment. Yeah. Was, um, <laughs> uh, well, well, it was it destroyed? Talk, tell us about what happened to Bacharach after this film. Well, uh, you know, the, the partnership between Bacharach and Hal David 
split up. Buckrack sort of doesn't do much well, for a long time. Well, he goes and makes um, this, uh, these couple of records that I bought, um, including... He makes a version of... I mean, this is, he didn't... You know, it's not that he didn't like uh, the songs from Lost Horizon, because he goes off and makes an album of them right. himself. There it is, living together. Yeah. And that's actually very, very beautiful, even if the, uh, the film didn't exist. And then this one, Futures, which is, a, again, another advance. That's 1977. So he's still kind of active, but I think they definitely kind of lost the... Lost the gist of it, but actually, in truth, if you look at the history of Bacharach and David, they'd lost the gist about a couple of years before. They'd had some wonderful singles um, with Dionne Warwick that didn't actually make it, and that must have been desperately disappointing after that very long run, you know, and all great mm. songwriting runs come to an end, they just do. I'd love you to do another, if you've got anything else to read from the book. Yeah, read us something from the book, Top. Because, I, I mean, what I, what, what I feel is that it's, this is a classic example of a of a narrative that sort of, if it, if it hadn't existed, somebody would have had to have invented it. It's, 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 um, it, it, I, I read it with a sense of familiarity, which was quite odd. I mean, you know, I'd never read it before, never really thought about James Hilton as a writer before. I mean, it, it's not massively similar to Mr Chips, but there are sort of themes there. Um, and I think, I don't know, I, st- I sort of think the whole idea of a... I mean, there's a brilliant passage where he predicts the Second World War mm. and mm. says, you know, there's a major... Com- com- and as you heard from that clip of him talking, you know, the World War's being numbered. Uh, and there is a sense, I can see that it has that, it has that sort of slightly creepy quality that people think, yes, you know, maybe, there's a, maybe there is this idea of living in a place where... I mean, I've got, there's a couple of things I've marked out where time, you've got time to do and to learn and to expand and, and this marvellous kind of... And the whole idea of Shangri-La... I mean, if I'm, if, as far as I can see, this is where sh- the whole Shangri-La, which is now hotels and everywhere you go in the world, there are Shangri-Las. This is the Fons et Origo of, of the concept... <laughs> Well, we, here's one... Blinkered, option. but erudite. <laughs> this is the Fons Federigo of Shangri-La. I mean, this is where Shangri-La comes from. Well, well, and, then when you, and, you know, you, you look on the internet, there's Shangri-Las everywhere. Camp David, which is the president of the United States Country House, um, was originally called Shangri-La because of this. And that's a good fact. It's yeah, a big, that is a really and then it became, big, chunky bit of um, 20th century popular culture. Well, top, please, please read us yeah. uh, something well, to take us out. Read us out. So um, when Conway uh, arrives at um, Shangri-La, we learn learn how Shangri-La came to be, and it was because a Capuchin monk went there. Um, We find out later on that was a couple of hundred years ago, which is kind of an odd thing. Um, And he was Father Perrault, and he'd been ill, and he went there to get... Yield, etc. And this is a little bit, uh, just one paragraph really, but it's, it just sort of typifies the, the style of writing and some information about Father Perrault, who is then the sort of grandmaster that Conway then goes to see towards the end of the book to kind of get information about what happens. And uh, again, it's very difficult to tell people the story because it's gonna, mm-hmm. the story advances every couple of pages. It's going to spoil it. Um, now let me tell you about this man. His name was Perrault, and he was by birth a Luxembourger, it says. Before devoting himself to Far Eastern missions, he'd studied at Paris and other universities. He was something of a scholar. There are few existing records of his early life, but it was not in any way unusual for one of his age and profession. He was fond of music and the arts. He had a special aptitude for languages. And before he was sure of his vocation, he had tasted all the familiar pleasures of the world. So the idea being that you can actually be, um, you know, very fulfilled and still quite unhappy and needing something else. So it's got this emptiness at the centre of it. Mm. There's one little tiny bit which I thought was is quite nice. Is Conway, and this the link with the First World War, which I like. There came a time he realised when the strangeness of everything made it increasingly difficult to realise the strangeness of anything, Mm. when one took things for granted merely because astonishment would have been as tedious for oneself as for others. Thus far had he progressed at Shangri-La, and he had remembered that he had attained a similar 
though far less pleasant equanimity during his years at the war. Which I think is kind of... It's that... The whole point about the book is that Conway, who gets fitted up to become this mystic in the book, is sort of fitted up because he's been through the horror of the First World War. And that whole sense, which is a big cliche now, detachment, which, you know, the, the idea is... You know, the, the, the laziness in doing stupid things can be a great virtue is one of the, the lines <laughs> I love. But this idea that it's, you don't you don't attach yourself. Conway is, drives everybody mad by saying, "Hey, it's all right. I'm kind of I'm kind of here. I'm having. A, I'm quite enjoying myself." But it becomes a sort of a philosophical virtue by the end of the book. I, I think it's like I say. I don't think it is a towering masterpiece of a novel, but I think it's 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 it's. It's fascinating that it was as successful as it, it was. But it has that thing. It's one of the great gifts of fiction that I read it. I thought, what peculiar book. Look at the problems there. What, what are that lumpy mm. bit? That bit? Can I get it out of my head? Of course no, I can't. No, mm. As you know, it really resonates. So, Tot, mm. thank you. Yeah. Thank you for giving us, also, <laughs> giving me the excuse to um, <laughs> spend literally weeks and, listening and, to background and, music. And, 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 and there's nothing better than... There's, uh, I mean... I'm, I remember you said it. There's nothing better than Bacharach and David when they're on when they're yeah, on yeah, yeah. on song. Yeah. Oh, that seems as good a point as any. <laughs> <laughs> to, which to stop. Thanks to Top Taylor, to our producer Matt Hall, and thanks again to our sponsors Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Backlisted Pod um, or on Facebook. Facebook, obviously, Backlisted Pod. And now on our lovely, beautiful new page on the Unbound website on Boundless. Unbound's new and very delightful online magazine, unbound.com forward slash boundless forward slash backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks. You can 